Welcome to the Heart Chamber. I am your host, Boots Knighton. Today on the program, I interview Katherine Hofstetter. She is a horse trainer who specializes in retraining severely psychologically traumatized horses, as well as working with anxious riders. She is also an equine and raking master teacher, a reproductive health doula, an herbalist for horses, as well as humans alike. Catherine happens to also live with a connective tissue disorder called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which caused her to need a cardiac surgery called Repair of Tetralogy of Fallot at just one month old. She's also needed many procedures since then. Today, Catherine is using her story to help raise awareness for para-equestrians with invisible disabilities and illnesses with the equine industry. Catherine and I's conversation covers a lot of different things, including how to pronounce Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, as well as the tetralogy of Fallot. It's a French term. We also talk about how to handle conversations with people who just aren't in our shoes, meaning our shoes of having a congenital heart defect. It's a really powerful conversation. I found a lot of healing through this conversation, and I hope you do the same. If you like this conversation, I encourage you to go back and listen to all the other episodes on The Heart Chamber. You can go to The Heart Chamber Podcast, where you can leave me a note or even leave me a voicemail. I'd also appreciate it if you'd consider making a donation. You could also do that on my website. Your donation helps me keep this podcast going. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you find it helpful. Let's get right to it. Welcome, Catherine. I found Catherine via hashtag on Instagram of all places. And you may have heard in some previous podcasts that I've released where, you know, I've used social media as a tool for help. And when I decided to launch this podcast, I wanted to be able to highlight various open heart surgeries from all different types of people from all over the United States and the world. And so one day I just went to Instagram and typed in the hashtag open heart surgery and I found Catherine and she has quite the story. I'm so glad she said yes, even though I don't have much street credit until about now, but she said yes and we've just become instant friends. And so let's welcome Catherine. Catherine, thank you for being here. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. I am 26 years old and I'm originally from Santa Cruz, California. I live in Ojai right now and been sort of all over California, lived in Montana for a little while. And I was born initially with a condition called Tetralogy of Fallot, which is congenital heart defect, and lived most of my life thinking that that was kind of the primary issue. I also had repair of cranial syntosis at infancy. My repair of Tetralogy of Fallot happened when I was a month old, and the repair of cranial syntosis happened a few weeks later. And that was something that, you know, we, we thought was sort of a fluke. There wasn't any family history of that. There was really no rhyme or reason. And I really was told my entire life that, you know, I was this miracle baby and that I'd healed so much better than everyone had expected. And it was this incredible thing. And it was just sort of part of my story. And, you know, you can see my scars, very, very old. And it was just kind of part of my backstory. And, you know, it was going to be 
visits to the hospital for echocardiograms and things like that my whole life. But really, it was sort of going to be a part of my very, very early history and not something that was that relevant anymore. But happening all alongside that was that I continued to have these really, you know, this big, long list of debilitating health symptoms and, you know, that I was I was really struggling and I was really sick. And I would even, you know, as a tiny little toddler and, you know, little child go up to my mom and tell her, you know, that my skin hurt or that my eyebrows hurt. And, you know, or we'd call it tender touch when everything hurt, you know, the fabric hurt, you know, to touch me on my clothes and things like that. And so I was always just sort of told, like, you're a growing girl. That's part of it. And, you know, then I developed something called cyclic vomiting syndrome, where I would spend hours and hours and hours all night long. It, for me, it was 1.30 in the morning. I, every day I would wake up and just be sick for hours. And it didn't matter what I ate, how much I ate, how little I ate. There were days where I couldn't keep down water. Um, and I lost a really scary amount of weight. And that lasted like five or six years. And I was that whole time just told, you're a growing girl, hormone changes are difficult, all those different things. Eventually, I was diagnosed for, with fibromyalgia, and then I was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis. And I had all of these kind of free-floating conditions that sort of one after the other popped up. And it was sort of like, well, we don't really know why. And I switched birth control action several times, and that sort of would make things ever flow. But there was no real reason. And if I did, you know, hormone testing, everything came back normal. And so then it was actually when a really, really close friend of mine said to me at one time, um, after knowing me for, gosh, almost 10 years, said to me, you should consider talking to your doctor about something called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. A good friend of mine has it, and she has all the same you know, issues that you do. And you know, I'm not a doctor, but you should talk to your doctor and just see, because I'm you know, knowing you as well as I do, I would be a little bit shocked if you have all of the same overlap and not something at least similar. And so I went to my doctor and pretty much took them an eye blank to go, oh yeah, absolutely. That's clearly that's the reason. And it's been How the reason old for all you? of these things. I was, I think, 19 yeah. at the time, 19 or 20. Um, okay. And wow. actually I was a little bit older than that. I was maybe 22. And, you know, I'm, I'm hypermobile and um, have you know, easy bruising. I also have postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS, um, which is a fainting disorder and blood flow disorder. And that was something I was able to be medicated for for about a year. And then unfortunately, I during the pandemic had COVID and that caused that medication to not work anymore. And so, you know, really, yeah, it's been really challenging. I did not know COVID could do that. Yeah, my cardiologist said that a lot of people within my age demographic who were taking that medication, it's called Mididrin, um, were taking it for POTS, were failing to see any kind of benefit from it after contracting COVID. And that they so far didn't have any patients who had that experience that had regained any kind of efficacy from the medication. So that oh was really gosh. challenging. Although, frankly, the medication also made me feel really bad. Um, so I was okay with, you know, sort of accepting it. But it got to the point where, you know, the POTS became really the most significant thing. And that was something that causes random onset blackout. And that was starting to happen at one point, like while I was on my horse or while I was driving. Um, and it would... You really random. And that also has happened my entire life. And I was always just told like, oh, head rushes are normal. But it was things like, you know, as a small child, the term that, you know, my, my, cause I was raised by a single mother and, um, you know, was so supportive through everything. And so we had all these little like shorthands that we would use. So there was like tender touch or one of the things that was an expression was like, I would go noodle boned. And so I'd go to hug her and she was thinking I was going for a normal hug and I'd kind of start that way. And then all of a sudden my vision would go and my hearing would go and all my arms, you know, my arms and legs would go numb and I would just sort of collapse and hang on her. 
And for a long time, you know, she would think at first, before we started to recognize a pattern, she would think like, oh, Catherine's just being silly, you know, haha, stand up. And then I would go like kind of nonverbal when it would happen. And so I couldn't express like, I can't see, I can't hear. And it would take a while. And eventually my ability to communicate would come back before my vision or hearing. And I would say like, I can't, I can't see, I can't move, I can't whatever. And she would kind of, you know, just stay with me. And it was always just like, I had this, these weird combinations of quirks that I was always just told like, it's probably normal. And they were really debilitating and challenging. And with things like the joint pain and the hypermobility and, you know, I'd go to work with my horses and go to girth up a saddle and the effort of girthing up a saddle would make me dislocate my ribs, you know, and that would happen all the time. And it was just sort of like, "Ah, oops, weird. We don't know. And then with the Ehlers-Danlos diagnosis, that was the thing that was like, suddenly we could see this overarching, like, oh, all of these other things I have going on are symptomatic, you know, comorbid conditions with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And many, many people who experience Ehlers-Danlos syndrome also have these other things in some combination. And Ehlers-Danlos syndrome itself is a really diverse condition. You know, there are people who suffer to the extent that, you know, they have it up the blood or, you know, on levels where they have feeding tubes or their, you know, organs are collapsing at a really rapid rate. You know, there, there are people who have manifestations of it that are not invisible. And then there are people who, you know, carry it like my mom who, you know, bruises really easily and that's it, you know, and that's the only way it affects her is that she bruises really easily. And it seems like it can sometimes sort of skip a generation. And so, you know, my grandmother had it worse, you know, than my mom and more like I do, but I'm the only member of our family that's ever had and it your to the extent. Of- if I may, mm-hmm. oh, sorry for interrupting, but like, oh, no, no I'm worries. sure your grandmother, was there even an awareness back then? that it was a syndrome like had it even been given a name yeah no it hadn't and she at least not to my knowledge I'm you know totally prepared to be fact-checked on that (laughs) but as far as I know it's it certainly was not a common diagnosis if it was something that had been established as a diagnosis yet I mean this is something that even in my lifetime I mean I remember when I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia and that was something that was kind of considered like a trendy diagnosis at the time. And what was challenging about that is that I do have fibromyalgia and it is very severe. And part of the reason that it got discovered was because it was sort of this more popular diagnosis. And so then I went through this whole period of people telling me like, oh, well, you've only been diagnosed with that because it's so popular and everyone has fibromyalgia right now, except the reality is I do. And, you know, I think similar to people who have life-threatening celiac disease right around the time that, you know, gluten awareness and gluten intolerant, you know, intolerance awareness became a thing. You know, there was this sort of tongue in cheek, like, well, everybody's, you know, allergic to gluten. And for the people who it's life-threatening for, it's an incredible thing that suddenly this is really well known and the awareness of it is, you know, life-saving. And so, you know, the fact that it, what's interesting is when I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, when I was in early high school, people would say fibromyalgia, what's that? And they didn't know. Now everyone knows what it is and no one knows what Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is. And it's like slowly catching on. Um, And the same thing is true for POTS. And so I'm sort of noticing the medical field progressing in that way where more of these things are becoming, you know, commonplace and understood. And I know there's, there's a viewpoint in the Ehlers-Danlos community where there's sort of a, an, group and communal identification as, you know, zebras, because there's this term in the medical community when, you know, people are in medical school of when you hear hooves, think horses, not zebras, meaning look for the simplest possible diagnosis. It's probably not 
the crazy convoluted thing. It's probably whatever is, you know, the most obvious. And we as patients tend to represent the zebras. We're the ones. It doesn't look like all of the 500 other first things that it seems like it should be. It's something that's, you know, much more complicated than that. And so I also working with horses professionally have found, you know, finding myself in that particular community of people who have sort of an equine, you know, self-identifier is something that was sort of a universally interesting coincidence. But, you know, I really felt like the biggest changes for me in terms of my medical experience happened in this past year. And that was because in 2022, yeah, 2022 or 2021. Yeah, 2021. (laughs) So much medical stuff, you know, sometimes it gets a little bit jumbled around. When did that happen? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which hospital visit was that? But yes, it was the summer of 2021. I had my hip sockets reconstructed because of complications in their and formation. And how old were you at that time? I was 24. So I'm 26 now. And okay. it was one at a time. And I had the surgeries one month apart from one another. And after that surgery and after I healed from that, and that was all, again, caused by the Ehlers-Danlos condition where there were structural you know, issues in how my my skeleton was put together and they basically needed to go in and shave off the whole top of my femur, the whole inside of the acetabulum and bring back and reconstruct and reshape my hip socket and then effectively lace back together the ligament that holds your hip socket shut because it had torn on both sides in various places, all because of the collagen dysfunction. So backing up for a moment, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is a collagen production disorder. And so what that means, you know, collagen is that, you know, wonderful substance that holds all of your joints and all of the tissues in your body together. And when you have issues with the production of that, then you start to see either hypermobility or, you know, various kinds of dysfunction in those structures in the body. And so for me, one of the manifestations of that was my hips. And that's something that on my matrilineal line has been true, you know, generations back, hips, knees, joints, you know, wrists, all of those things have been, you know, replaced or are replaced in an ongoing way in all of the, you know, matrilineal line of my family. And so that was kind of another clue of like, okay, this is, you know, not happening in a vacuum. But after that surgery, those two surgeries I had on my hips, I was put for the very first time in my life, I had an incredible cardiologist here at UCLA who thought, we don't have any record of an MRI for you. I would like to put you in an MRI and just see what's going on because there is something that can happen to the the aorta in Ehlers-Danlos patients where it can basically it can collapse. And I had been told, and my my mom had been told too when I was born, that one of the issues with the tetralogy of Fallot was that I had a collapsed aorta and that they had to put a ring around my heart or around my aorta rather. And when they went in for the MRI, they didn't find any history of that. And they thought that maybe one of the things that happened is that the ring maybe just dissolved. And so they couldn't see a history of it. But I also had holes in my heart that had to be repaired And so they went and they looked at all of those things. And the thing that they initially were concerned about finding that they were worried that maybe would someday require a second open heart surgery, they didn't find. And that was a good thing. However, they found something really different that they were not expecting to find. And I'm going to pause before I go into what that is and say this was the first time in my life that anyone had thought about putting me in an MRI. And that was something that became a much major, a much more major issue. And the fact that I've gone through all the different things I've gone through and had all these diagnoses and that no one did that, you know, when I was a baby and I had, you know, it was 1997 when I had my first open heart surgery. And, you know, at the time the MRIs, you know, were not quite as well made as they are now, you know, they were a newer thing. And so I could understand how as an infant, you know, they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to risk putting my very, very fragile body 
through something like that. But then they just never did it. And that was a really kind of horrific oversight because I have something that they discovered called pectus excavatum. And pectus excavatum is uh, most commonly found in adolescent males from five to 10 years old. And it is a structural issue where your sternum, instead of growing outwards to protect your chest cavity, grows inwards into your chest cavity. It grows the wrong direction. And, you know, we didn't catch this until I was 25. That was just earlier, you know, gosh, probably almost a year, year ago now that I had that done. And I knew. And if I could interrupt. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Hang on one second. So as you're finding out about this, like, did you... Is it obvious from the outside? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was one of like, those do things. Do you look different on your chest? Sort of. Okay. So I didn't realize that I did. I have my, the bottom of my rib cage, you know, is a little bit more upraised and kind of sticks out. And I was always told that that was because when I had my open heart surgery, they broke my sternum and opened my chest cavity up this way. They broke my ribs out this way. And so I was basically, there's a horrible Viking ritualistic sacrifice called being blood eagled. And it's when they do that from the back. And so we've always joked that I was blood eagled from the front, which is horrible gallows humor, but that's everyone copes differently. Um, Dark humor just becomes a part of our lives as as heart warriors. It does. Well, and I I also (laughs) have pretty intensive historical education from as a result of the different kinds of performing arts I've done. So I'm very interested in that sort of whole era of history. And so when I learned about that, I was like, hey, wait a minute. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) That's what they did to me. But, you know, the point being when (laughs) they wired my sternum back together afterwards, I was always told that that just kind of because of that caused my my sternum and my rib cage to be upraised a little bit. And so my sternum doesn't sit as flat and it kind of comes up and out at the bottom. You know, it's shaped basically like this rather than being like this and protecting your chest cavity. And so that was something we're like growing up in the day and age we do in a woman's body, you know, seeing these like very, very flat tummies and rib cages and things like that was always an issue for me. And I, you know, hated seeing like the bottom of my rib cage sticking out and as a, as a dancer, you know, that always really bothered me, but I was always just told like that's because that's the result of your surgery. And I also through, through these different careers have pretty intensive anatomy education specific to horses. However, their anatomy is actually very close to human anatomy, particularly the anatomy of their heart. And when I had this appointment with my cardiologist who told me about the results of my MRI, it was via Zoom. And so she was able to go in and show me the video of my MRI and everything and show me the sort of 3D mock-up of my heart and all of that. And it was like an exact replica of my heart, not just like a heart and here's where it is. And I saw it. And before she started talking about anything, just with my own anatomy sort of education, I was like, "Mm, something doesn't look good with that right ventricle. That looks wrong. Something that shouldn't look small and shriveled up like that. What? Why does that look like that? That should be the biggest part of the heart, not the smallest part of the heart. What's going on? And that was where she then told me that because of the pectus excavatum, my sternum is pushing on my heart and that my body's done kind of an incredible adaptive thing, which is to just shrink the part of my heart, my right ventricle, that it's sitting on so that my heart can continue to beat being smushed by my sternum. And that's a really wonderful thing. It also is part of why I have POTS because my heart is the wrong shape and wrong size and kind of literally marches to the beat of its own drum. And so that means that its ability to effectively pump the blood correctly through my body and get oxygen to all of my body is not very good. And so that was sort of a whole big part of that. 
and the procedure to, and, you know, she opened with like, I'm so sorry because we could correct this. But then she went down the laundry, laundry list of reasons why correcting the pectus excavatum is kind of a non-starter for me. You know, one of those oh, reasons being because of your connective tissue. Partially. So the thing is when it is in young children, and again, it's, I mean, she said, there is not even really any literature for the specialists that I know to refer to, to study something like, you know, the treatment you would need being done on an athletic adult female. That's just not something that we even have any history of. So you would be kind of a guinea pig. And the connective tissue disorder means that the ability for them to get, so basically it would be a big steel bar that would be screwed to the inside of my rib cage on one side, sort of laced through and then screwed to the other side and like internal braces. That's like a big, kind of like a smaller version of like a shower grip bar, but sort of rib cage shaped. So, you know, screwed into either side oh of my, my rib gosh. cage on the, on the underside, on the inside. And they said, aside from who you are and the conditions you face, this is one of the procedures that has the highest risk of lung puncture, basically, that's out there. So that already is an issue. And then they said, because of your connective tissue disorder, we would be really worried that we would go to screw in the bar and that it would just shatter your bones or that you would move it away or do something, you know, once you're, you know, out of that surgery, that you would move in a way where you would be, you know, at risk of having those bones shatter where, you know, where those weak points are created from the screws. The other thing is I would need to be on opiate level painkillers the entire time the bar is in and it would have to be in for two to 10 years. And then after all of that, oh my gosh, it is highly likely that because my bones are done growing, because I'm not a five or 10 year old boy, that my rib cage would just go right back to where it was and not stay out. The other concern is that if in the time while the bar was in, that allowed my heart to adapt and grow to how it should be. And then if they pulled the bar out and my rib cage goes right back, it would immediately just crush my heart in a way that I may not even survive surgery. And so that's yeah. really kind of not an option. Um, as much as it is technically no. an option, it's not something that any of my you know, medical staff would, would be willing to look at. And it also has meant that Things like choosing to ever, you know, build a family someday is something that I've been told my options would be pretty limited for. I also, because of the Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, struggle with things like endometriosis and chronic ovarian cysts, which was also partially caused by a reaction to a form of birth control that I had tried at one time. And so that's been a really kind of difficult challenge for me to navigate was learning that having children naturally is something that I would be very limited in my ability to do if I could do it at all. And it's something that I'm over the years more open to getting additional opinions about and sort of seeing where some of the the truth in that might lie. But, you know, it is it is something that has been a really difficult part of that journey, particularly because I started my my own professional journey to become a full spectrum doula basically the year prior to learning all of that. And that's where from doing that, I, I pivoted to just working as a reproductive health doula because I just didn't feel like I was in the space to be comfortable working on the birth and postpartum side of those things. It was just, you know, sort of too painful for me. And I brought too much of my own material to it yeah. to feel like I could hold that container for mm -hmm. anyone else. But yeah, I think wow. that's, I think that takes an incredible likely. amount of wisdom to know like where, you know, where you can be of service and where that right. needs to stop.
like a lot of times people just keep choosing their trauma over and over again. And it just sounds like you, even at your age, you're, you said you're 26 now, correct? Yeah. And so, I mean, I think back to when I was 26, I'm almost 20 years, I'm 18 years older than you, but I I did not have that wisdom then that you have already. So that's just really profound. Wow. Thank you, Catherine, for sharing that and incredible story. And I'm hearing a lot of different things, but mostly I'm hearing this constant opportunity yeah. <laughs> to practice to practice radical acceptance yeah. over and over again and to just come back to this truth of that you're a miracle. I mean, we're all a miracle. I mean, I think about the miracle of life, right? Yeah. And you know, there sounds like there were some missteps in the medical community. It almost sounds like you've been like training the doctors as you've been going through all of this. Yeah. You know, like they are almost like learning your, you as like this, they're taking your case and learning from it. And you're like their greatest, one of their greatest teachers. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm hearing through all of this. And that can be really scary. And I will totally, <laughs> it can be. Yeah. Cause like you want to, when you show up at the doctor's office, you don't want to have to like be thinking for them. Right. And I can tell you like with my diagnosis two years ago with the myocardial bridging, I mean, it really stumped the Intermountain West, yeah. you know, and it's still believed to, to not cause problems right. in a lot of the cardiology community and Stanford University is thankfully starting to debunk that. Stanford's but great. Are you, yeah, and so is UCLA, I hear. And so, like, do you have, I have so many questions. (laughs) So, like, let's just start with the most recent. Like, do you have a specialist that specializes in your syndrome, like, that you can go to that you feel solid with now? For the most part, yes, I do, sort of. Unfortunately, I wish the answer was just a straight yes, and they're amazing, (laughs) and here's their name. Uh, sadly, it's not quite that straightforward. I wish I wish that for you too. I do have a cardiologist, okay. um, Jeanette Lim at, and Jeanette Lynn is based at UCLA, um, and she's in the adult congenital department. And UCLA is interesting because they their adult congenital department is very limited beyond a certain point. And as soon as you need a specialist, you go over to the pediatric congenital department. And so my surgeon that oh. did my pacemaker is somebody who. Didn't, as far as I was aware, have any real understanding in terms of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Like he wasn't a specialist with that. He kind of, he knew what it was, but it was one of those like, so walk me through what this is when we, you know, first had our our initial meeting and I had to kind of break down all of those things for him. And, you know, he was able to, of course, speak extensively with my cardiologist about it, but, you know, he sort of did the, I want to hear from you and what's your experience. But my primary cardiologist is very familiar with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and I am not her only patient that has it. Um, And that's why, I mean, she was the one who, gosh, she changed my life by saying, no one's ever put you in an MRI. And there are things that can happen for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome patients that we can only find out from an MRI. So I want to have that looked at for you and get a baseline and understanding and all of those different things. And if she hadn't done that, then I there was there's a lot that I wouldn't know. And I think that that was where the the things that she was able to uncover for me what were what put me into the category no longer of just like having some chronic illnesses that have some complications and into the no, I have full-on invisible disabilities. And these are I am I am yeah. now in that 
community and I've I've been escalated to that tier of things and and that was really hard for me to come to terms with because one of the things that I have been met with my whole life and this has been sort of my source of greatest angst and also sort of this weird pride point coping mechanism kind of thing where I get met with and have my whole life oh my gosh you look so healthy or oh my gosh you're I mean this is a direct (laughs) this is a direct quote and I had a lot of issues with this one specifically that I got under a month ago was really but you look so young and healthy and really, it's a shame because you're so young and beautiful, to which I was like, oh, okay, so if I wasn't beautiful, mm. you could believe it more. Like, what does that mean? Why do you, what? why does your perception of disability have anything to do with conventional attractiveness? And that's, you know, was a pretty, pretty inflammatory thing for me for several days after that and took a lot. But I've, I've had such an endless string throughout my life of, oh my gosh, but you're so young or, you know. I, at your age to have gone through all that, you know, and all those different things. And so it sort of incites a lot of different reactions from people. And uh, the thing that I think doesn't come to the forefront very often is that those people have their wide spectrum of reactions and I'm the container for it every single time. So they get to kind of have their one reaction and that exists just for them in that moment. And then it's over. Whereas I sort of have these reactions from people that I've had to learn how to gracefully sort of navigate, you know, over time. And the thing that's been challenging is that every time sort of the subconscious messaging that's come through is that a tremendous amount of my worth has been placed in my ability to pass as not disabled and as fully abled. And, you know, oh my gosh, but that's amazing that you'd never know it. And you can do all those things with a horse and, you know, all those. And it's, it's true. The sentiment of what they're trying to say of what a beautiful thing that you're able to live the life you love and do the thing you're passionate about and, you know, help horses and help people still through what you're going through is incredible. And I understand that part of what they're saying is I am in awe of your journey, though I can't relate to it. And I totally can appreciate that. And should sort of also have that exist within this vein of like, you know, oh, but you're so young, therefore I don't want to perceive that. And, you know, one of the things that I've spoken a lot about with my therapist, therapist who's incredible, I'm a huge advocate for like ongoing therapy for everyone all the time. Just like, even if there's nothing going on. Same, same. And, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things Mm -hmm. my therapist has talked about is that someone like me is going to be more likely to be confronting for people and that I'm going to confront them with their mortality in a way that somebody who is visibly disabled doesn't really because they're able to separate like, well, that person has all those things I can see going on. And I, if I look quote unquote normal or what I perceive to be as normal, then I'm fine. I'm young, I'm healthy, whatever. But when I, someone who, and the the reality is I don't typically ever get those reactions from people who are my age. Those those reactions typically come exclusively from people who are 20 plus years my senior. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that has been sort of impressed upon me is that a big piece of that reaction is you are someone who's younger than me and appears very healthy. And if you could have these life-threatening illnesses, that confronts me with my mortality and that I'm sort of reflecting Mm -hmm. something about them back to them just by existing that is uncomfortable. And, you know, that's a really complicated thing to grapple with because, you know, while anyone in this position didn't ask to be the container for that, that's also part of, you know, part of my journey. And so, you know, that's another really big piece. So can I stop you there? Yeah. Yeah, I thanks for sharing all that. And I I have 
had the exact same experience. And in fact, the first time I walked into my cardiologist after my cardiac event that drew attention to my heart, he was like, he was like, Miss Knighton, what is a young, you know, healthy adult like you right. doing in my office? You know, and I remember I said, well, I'm wondering the same thing. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I want to hear from you. What do you need to hear instead? Gosh. You know, we don't talk about yeah, that enough, I love that. right? Like, for asking that. you know, and it's like there's the difference between sympathy and empathy mm-hmm. and, you know, but like, what would you rather hear instead? So yeah. instead of, wow, you're so young and beautiful right. and healthy and you do all that you love, right. like, what do you need instead? Because right. I have a feeling that there's a lot of listeners today that feel the same yeah. or people who are caregivers. Right. What can they say instead to their loved one yeah. that's dealing with something similar to this? You know, it's it's funny. One of the pieces of feedback that I get a lot is, well, people say that because they don't know what else to say and they're trying to show you know, their support or they're trying to show empathy or they just don't really know how. One of the most powerful things, and this is typically the response that I get from people who are a little bit younger, tend to be closer to my age group or even younger than I am, is, gosh, I I don't know what to say, but I am so grateful to be here connecting with you right now. Or I'm so grateful that you're here and able to do the things you love. I don't know what to say, but I'm so grateful that you were able to get through your journey. Um, one of the things that I think it for me is important is that when somebody says something like, I'm so sorry you've had to go through that, it doesn't, it doesn't hit me negatively, but it sort of bounces off me. It doesn't, it doesn't really do anything for me. It sort of feels like it's more for them and my ability to receive their, I'm so sorry you're going through that has a much bigger impact on them than it does for me because having someone feel sorry for me doesn't really make me feel better either and feeling pitied doesn't you know the other piece of what i've gotten a lot is it's not helpful well and i get told a lot particularly in the equestrian community i get told you know oh i'm so inspired by you or what an inspiration or whatever and that feels like it comes from a place of pity of you know and i've even have people said sort of versions of like you know gosh if you can do all that then i know i can you know do whatever i set my mind to which is sort of like that says some things in there that don't make me feel very good. <laughs> you know, yeah, what is implied is not helpful. Right. Yeah. The amount of things that are implied towards mm-hmm. us, usually not helpful. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> gosh, it's yeah. And so that's where I think, you know, there's so much power. And this is one of those things because I realize that in answer to, well, what what would you like to hear and what, you know, feels supportive, there is sort of an invitation and a challenge in what my answer is of saying, you know, if someone can say, I don't know what to say but I'm grateful that you're here or I'm grateful to know you or some version of that, that means that they have to be vulnerable enough to admit that they don't know how to relate and that they don't know what to say. And that's really hard for most people. And so I can appreciate that that is a tremendously large ask. And, you know, that is also something that's really confronting for someone to have to say, I don't know what to say. You know, I don't know. We're often some of the, you know, scariest words that we have. And I think that, particularly, and that goes to, you know, with caregivers as well. I mean, I've got some really close people in my life who have spent a long time, you know, being caregivers and of course being, you know, raised by a single mom who was my caregiver and continues to be. I think the same thing goes for those people. And they've shared with me sort of this level of like receiving pity. And I'm so sorry you have to go through that. Doesn't really do anything because it doesn't, it doesn't lighten it. It doesn't really make me feel like, you know, for somebody to say, 
I don't know what to say, but I'm here with you, also says this person has the capacity to hear and hold space for my journey, even if they can't relate to it. And when somebody does the like, I'm so sorry, you're dealing with that, that also kind of implies to me a like, and I don't really want to talk about that anymore. Or that's really intimidating to me. Or, you know, some version of that of like, this is a downer or, you know, whatever the hundred versions of sort of subtext can be in that. And that can be really challenging, particularly, I think, for caregivers who are on a whole other journey. And, you know, I'm hopeful that at some point, maybe there might be some caregivers on your podcast to share their stories, because I think that's a whole whole other kind of experience that also is totally valid and has a lot of its own unique challenges. But and they need yeah, I think, they need to have a voice too. You know, they need oh, to yeah. have a, a container to within to be held, you know. And right. You know, I just thinking more about everything you're sharing and different ways people I mean, every way you've just given an example of, of how people have responded to you, I've experienced the same. And you know, where I had how I finally kind of made peace with all of that is, you know, everyone shows up with the tools that they have on any given day. And they're doing, I truly believe, I, I, I try to be generous and and assuming that the other person meeting me where, you know, in that day, in that moment is doing the best they right. can. And, you know, when they say, when they kind of come across with pity or, you know, inspiring, in fact, just yesterday, I had a friend say to me, I'm going to rub you for good luck, you know, and I just instantly pictured myself like on a keychain, like, you know, as a rabbit. And I giggled, I giggled all the way home from where I ran into her because it was just so funny. And I know she meant it well, you know, but like, I don't want to be a good luck charm, but I know what she was getting at. And it was really kind of sweet and endearing, (laughs) but you know, it's just, it's information. Mm -hmm. You know, when people have pitied me, it's information letting me know, like you said, they're not, they don't have the skills to go there. They don't have the vulnerability. They don't have the courage. Well, and I've seen it. And I'm not saying that as like, yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, I'm not saying like a character flaw right. is just the state of the day, right. right? And it's like, not only do you and I have to like keep exercising our skill sets over and over again of radical acceptance right. and maintaining our symptoms and just getting through the damn day some days, right. it's like we also have to manage the people around us right. and their skill well, sets. Well, and it's exhausting. And there's just some days where I like <laughs> go on strike. Right. Well, I want to go on strike. And it's exhausting the <laughs> amount of gracefulness sometimes that it takes to feel like I'm lapping people with the inner work required to just have like to hold space for their knee jerk reaction that is a manifestation of like whatever their skill set is. Like my skill set has to be so exponentially yeah. developed to hold space for somebody who's really not giving it a second thought. And, you know, that's right. part of the challenge is navigating that. And one of the things that I have found that is, you know, an ongoing struggle for me is that I, you know, got started in my career with horses extraordinarily young. And, you know, I got started professionally very, very young and have been decades younger than my peers for as long as I've been doing it and decades younger than my clients for pretty much the whole time I've been doing it. And I can count on one hand the clients I've had that are within 10 years of my age who, you know, I, I do this really difficult work with. Um, and I mean, difficult in terms of like deeply emotionally vulnerable work. And of course, you know, I work with children and young adults as well, but that the scope of that work doesn't quite get into the same kinds of vulnerabilities. And so I don't encounter these, these challenges in the same way. But one of the things that I have found is I will be connecting with someone who doesn't know anything about my medical history 
And they'll be asking me about my education with horses, my experience, you know, my professional background, and they'll hear about that. And I'll start to notice sort of some things coming up for them and them starting to kind of distance themselves in a way where they might have some intimidation that's coming up and have some insecurities and vulnerabilities coming up because I'm much younger than them and maybe have, you know, studied more intensively or have more sort of practical experience or professional experience. And that can be really difficult for people. And they will sort of start to get more and more closed off and abrasive with me the more I, you know, share with them and the more they ask about whatever my background is. And I'll sort of get this like, wow, you know, you've really done a lot of learning or whatever. And I'll get sort of like an underhanded response. And then in the conversations where, for whatever reason, there's any kind of medical disclosure that's come about, or even sometimes days, weeks, months later, when that information comes up in one regard or another, I will notice this shift of what is initially sort of being wary of me and being like maybe a little bit insecure just because of the unusual power dynamic of me being brought in as a specialist to deal with someone in their horse or to, you know, consult for a trainer who's struggling, you know, or things like that, where I'm much younger than them. Suddenly what makes it okay that I'm younger than them is that I've overcome all of these medical issues. And I go from being someone who's really raises their hackles a lot to being an inspiration. And they go from like, it's almost like they have this shame response that they allowed themselves to feel, to do any kind of comparison or have judgment or do those things. Once they learn about my medical history, then they go, you're a miracle and you're an inspiration and you're all these things. And I sort of go, well, five minutes ago, you kind of seemed like you didn't like me very much, you know, and now I'm an inspiration. And, And it's sort of like, it makes it okay with them that I have mm-hmm. that I know more about something than them or that I have, you know, a level of experience that eclipses their own on some level that I've had to go through all these challenges. And that the only reason that it's okay that I have some kind of, you know, in their perception imbalanced level of knowledge, comparatively speaking, is because that's the sort of karmic relief that I get from or reward that I get from having had to go through all of these medical things. And that it's like shift. It's like you've really been given noticeable. credibility. Right. Exactly. Like I've been given credibility. Like suddenly my experiences are allowed to be valid. Like I'm no longer threatening because now I'm an inspiration. And that's something that it's taken me several years to like really notice it. But now that I have, it's it's like clockwork sometimes. And it can be really challenging because neither of those responses from people feel like I'm being truly seen or connected with in a meaningful way. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't want somebody to be comparing themselves to me, especially if it's a client, you know, who's bringing me in or if it's, you know, a fellow boarder or whatever it is, you know, I, I everyone's got valuable knowledge and everyone's got, you know, so much valuable information. And I always move through my interactions, assuming that, you know, for anything I know, every every client I interact with, every person, you know, in the community that I interact with, certainly has knowledge that I do not and that I would seek to have and like to learn from them. And so I think to be sort of othered in that way where I have no control over over that and their perception is something that is very challenging. And an ongoing piece of inner work for me has been coming to terms with, you know, the fact that, you know, I, I can't control other people's perceptions and to be perceived in a way that is so inaccurate on two really diametrically opposed levels to who I am and how I move through the world is really challenging. And it makes, you know, can make me feel really small and really 
disempowered. And so that's something that I have a lot of ongoing, you know, inner work around and that's gotten easier for me over the years because of that ongoing work. But, you know, it's it's certainly a challenging piece that I'm sure everybody, you know, in in our position within, you know, the field, particularly of anyone who's got an invisible disability, really struggles with. And that was a big that I mean that was really the reason that at least the primary reason that I kind of came out, so to speak, about all of my medical stuff that I have going on and that I did it on my professional platform and that I wanted to integrate into business and my work and all of those things and my, you know, my story, all of that. Because even though I call my business open heart horsemanship because of my journey, that name started at a time when my open heart surgery was like part of my history and kind of, yes, it's always been part of my origin with horses, but it was not like who I am every day in a, on a life-threatening level. And so for me to kind of take ownership of my story and be in control of how it relates to everything else that I do also gave me a level of empowerment to get ahead of people choosing to make me a victim when that's not who I am. And because yeah, so you're writing the story for them, right? right? Rather than having them write the story about you. Right. And that's where I think also, you know, there for a long time, you know, I felt like I got met with so much resistance professionally because of my age and that if someone could overlook my age just long enough to actually see my worth as a professional and what I have to offer as a facilitator and the kinds of help that I can contribute, you know, that was something that I went, you know, God, no way in hell am I going to try to challenge that by adding in this new layer of like, also, I have these, you know, major medical disabilities. This is one more big thing for you to make an exception for and challenge your perception about. So I sort of went people, you know, I I made the decision for other people of you cannot handle making this many exceptions for me. If I could see how hard it was for you to make an exception for my age, surely these other things are also going to be difficult. So I'm just not going to share those. I'm going to capitalize on how well I mask those things. And it's I'm sure anyone who deals with these things and these conditions knows anytime somebody goes and every now and then I'll get as a compliment. Oh, you, well, you hide it really well. Like, thanks. It's ongoing pain and turmoil. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not easy yeah, to hide yeah, it really so. well. But, mm-hmm. you know, in the process of doing that, I sort of learned how to use my ability to hide it to my supposed advantage. And then over time went, okay, I think actually it could be more helpful for me to share this, particularly because if I was a little girl growing up with all these things, you know, looking at my friends and going, gosh, they can jump up on the ground from their horse, you know, with their horses bareback. And if I do that, my kneecaps will fracture and it really hurts and I can't do that. And, you know, I'm getting told that I'm not as good of a horse rider and that I'm not as good as, you know, a a trainer or an equestrian or whatever, because I can't make my horse do these things. And the reality is, you know, my body couldn't do those things. And there must be another little girl or, you know, a thousand little girls or however many out there who also have these things going on and they don't know why. And, you know, we're in the same position I was in. And if, you know, any one of them has access to social media and can see, you know, gosh, here's this girl who's doing what I want to do when I grow up. And well, would you look at that? She's got all the same things I do, or she was in the hospital too. And gosh, she gets scared being in the hospital when she's alone. And maybe I'm being brave just like she is. And it's okay for me to feel scared because she feels scared too, because I didn't get to have that. And so there was a moment where I stopped and went, I think it's actually starting to feel a little selfish to hide my story and to be able to choose to not share it in that way started to feel like I was kind of closing off the opportunity to use my story to 
create space for others who deal with things like with what I deal with. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm also hearing it's <clears throat> by sharing your story, it also creates, well, look, I mean, we're now connected, right? right? And it's like when we're willing to tell our story, it opens up the opportunity for connection. Right. Absolutely. And so much of heart healing is, you know, and I'm just thinking about the heart and I know yeah. you have a lot more you know, aches and pains, right. but you know, it's like just from the heart perspective, like just simply connecting mm-hmm. with you today and connecting with the other patients I've already had the honor of interviewing. It's amazing how I, I, I heal every time. Yeah. I heal more and more. And you're right. Like you are telling the story for the other, you know, little girls that no matter what activity they're trying to do, you're giving them a voice to say, hey, actually right. something's not right, right here. Absolutely. Another thing that came to mind as you were sharing about how your clients would change, like, you know, from like just maybe potentially struggling with your age, then changing, like once they knew your medical history, I kind of experienced the same thing and not necessarily with age, but just like, I noticed like my whole world started treating me differently, you know, when I started going through my heart stuff. And I mean, it was appropriate, Right. right? Like I went from being the strongest I'd ever been to not. And I think most people had an appropriate response. And the word that keeps coming up is grace. And it's a delicate balance of when is someone, you know, meeting me, meeting you, the listener here, like with grace, or is it pity? And I think, you know, you are, you are raising awareness that we all could do better with meeting each other with grace. And ourselves. And when I say, when I think of, yeah. Oh, totally. That's where like I had the biggest shortcoming was meeting myself. Oh, me too. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, I'm writing a book about it right now. And, you know, it's, I just, there's such a different, like if I th- say the word grace and feel into that, and then I think of the word pity and feel into that. It's totally different. Like pity just feels like this weight on my heart. Mm-hmm. Like that's not healthy, like almost like a toxicity. Yeah. And grace just is like this expansive opening, you know, and listeners try that too. It's like, you know, when you're, when you're approaching someone, you know, like Catherine or myself or, you know, yourself, if you're, you know, undergoing your heart journey at this moment, like, do you pity yourself or do you meet yourself with grace? It just makes all the difference. And that's just what I kept thinking over and over again, as you're sharing about your interaction with people, it's like. Yeah, some met you with grace. That 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 just made everything flow. And then the pity, that just kind of stifled the relationship. Right. Well, and I think the other big thing is, you know, can you meet yourself with grace in the face of other people not doing that, meeting you with pity or oh yeah. Hey, I, I work a lot with, you know, the word empowerment and with the concept of empowerment. And that's that's a through line of every modality that I do. And while I do a lot of different things professionally they are all interconnected even things that seem like they have nothing to do with horses or nothing to do with herbalism or things like that they're all interconnected really deeply in lots of you know kind of continually surprising ways and and the through line of personal empowerment is something that i think is at the backbone of all of that and when a person has a response to you know my existence that feels disempowering you know i think the the true measure to me of where i'm at in my 
healing and my, you know, emotional intelligence and energetic intelligence and all those different things is my ability to sort of step into the space of the observer and meet myself, you know, find my own empowerment in that and not not need someone else to have an empowering or disempowering reaction for me to decide how I feel about myself. And those two things, I think, can ex- exist separately. You know, that can exist on one side. And on the other side, I can still be a human be- being who feels like, gosh, it doesn't feel good to be spoken to that way. And I'm you know, allowed to have my reaction yeah. of this doesn't make me feel good. And I'm so tired of dealing with it. And also doesn't define how I feel about myself in this moment. I can just be tired of it. And that's OK. And both of those things are separate from how I respond to that person, because that however somebody responds to me isn't going to change the fact that I will still meet them with grace because it gives me an opportunity to be an educator. And the reality is nobody is motivated and nobody changes as a result of shame. No one, no one's motivated by shame. It just doesn't work that way. No one steps out of their comfort zone because they've been shamed to do it and they've been embarrassed. And so if I have a critical response to somebody giving me a response to my existence that feels disempowering, they're never going to change. They're just going to make a judgment about me and who I am as a person, my personality, and they're going to be nervous to interact with anyone who has a disability that they can see because they're going to go, well, gosh, the one time I got sort of snuck up on by this other person, you know, I got a big bad reaction and I said the wrong thing. So now I'm just going to like not make eye contact with anyone who's got a you know disability I can see because that reaction was so bad. Yeah. So I would never shame someone. I think I would just in the way that I hold space for their response, sort of gently challenge, you know, and often what I come back with is things like, thank you so much for that. I'm actually, you know, really grateful that I've had all the experiences I've had because I wouldn't be able to do the work I'd you know, do if I hadn't or, you know, but if I can meet their pity for my condition by expressing my gratitude for the things that my experiences have given me, that usually tends to diffuse the pity pretty quickly. Yeah. And so oh, that's so skillful and so great. <laughs> well, like, thank you. That's, I mean, it is, I mean, that's like mega skills. (laughs) And, you know, I I think our listeners will really benefit from that. And anyone, you know, like all of us have been met with some kind of pity party at some point. And that's true for any man. We just don't have to join the party. Right. Well, and gosh, I mean, even if somebody's going through a divorce or, you know, it doesn't have to be a medical thing if they're going through a breakup or, you know, they like lose a pet or something. You know, gosh, everyone goes through things in their journey. And that's where, you know, I I had an interaction with someone the other day that, you know, my takeaway from it was him not being able to see that I am on my own journey that he can't see that's caused him to sort of have all of these disempowering reactions is a result of him being on a journey I can't see. So I'm going to meet that with the opportunity to hold space and, and grant him the grace that he didn't grant me because you know, I think where we start to struggle sometimes as human beings is to go, you know, if somebody has a, in, an inappropriate response to me, then I'm going to respond back and match their energy. And there's a lot of conversation right now. And the concept of matching someone's energy is kind of buzzy and popular and trendy right now. And I think that the reality is it brings to mind for me that expression of holding on to resentment is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. And I oh, think yeah. it's very similar yeah. in that way where you know, matching someone's energy is like, well, if their energy is crappy, I don't want to match their energy. I want to stay in my comfortable and powered place. And I want to be able to look at, you know, what their reaction is and hold it in a bubble outside of myself and go, hmm, 
most of this has nothing to do with me, even if some of it does have something to do with me, even in situations where I need to be accountable for something or, you know, I've got to I've got to step back and go, gosh, well, how did I contribute to this? And maybe there is something I should change, knowing that that does not separate the fact that they've got their own stuff. And however they're choosing to put forth to me, that interaction is directly informed by their own stuff and that the opportunity to hold that outside of myself and not match their energy is really, really valuable. And so I sort of have unsubscribed yeah. from the concept of just match someone's energy because I think it's really not actually that healthy <laughs> for us. Yes, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I um, I was listening to something earlier today where instead of saying, I can't say I don't. Yeah. And it was more in response to like, you know, busyness, mm -hmm. overwhelm, but, you know, same concept. And like, I don't match other people's energy. I stay, this is what right. I'm hearing you say, like, I stay in my own energy and that's just having healthy boundaries. Right. And, you know, that's, that's so key to staying well mentally, right. emotionally, as you are fighting the good fight for your body. And, you know, speaking of your body, like, what's next for you? So yeah. you had the MRI, you know, you've had all this new information, you know, as we start to wind down for today, like, tell me more about like what your future holds, what's, what's life like for you at this moment? Right. Yeah. I mean, right now, you know, the next step, I just had this pacemaker put in and I'm still a couple of weeks out from my final appointment um, and being able to do things like lift my arm above my head and all of that or lift anything over about 10 pounds. So I'm still pretty significantly <laughs> medically restricted. I can't ride or anything right now. And so it's, you know. And why did you have the pacemaker put in? So the pacemaker was because during the night, one of the things that was discovered along the way was that during the night, my heart would stop beating for periods of three seconds or more. Every single night. And that's a it long is. time. And that's it would happen time. several times throughout the night. <laughs> and okay. so the problem with POTS is that that has to do with spikes in your heart rate. So my heart rate still spikes. But what the pacemaker has done is it gives the way that my medical providers have put it gives a floor. So my heart rate can't drop below a certain amount because the pacemaker will oh, just start beating okay. for my heart. It also has helped. There's a way that they calibrate it. And I don't know enough about how it works yet. I'm still learning because I've only had it in my body for a couple weeks, but they can calibrate it so that very cool. They like whipped out an iPad and did it on the iPad where they calibrate it so that when my heart rate starts to drop because I'm having a fainting spell where what will happen is my heart rate spikes and then drops. And that's part of what causes those fainting spells. And so when it drops, it just is sensitive enough that the reaction time kicks in so they calibrate the number of seconds or milliseconds or whatever that passes after my heart rate drops that the pacemaker kicks back in. And so it, it looks at wow. how far my heart, heart rate is allowed to drop before it kicks in and then how long it can stay there. And we're actually going to make it a little bit more sensitive. But right now it's made it so that I don't ever like hit the floor. I will start, I'll do everything up to blacking out. So I'll still get dizzy. I'll have to hold on to something, but it doesn't make me fully pass out to the point where I'm like falling down. And that's been a tremendous benefit already. I'm really hopeful about the ways that we can make that even more sensitive because I would love to avoid all the other parts that still have to go with it. Sort of now I, I have only the discomfort and not the safety risks, which is a tremendous benefit. And I'm very, very grateful for that. And I would love to see how we can kind of combat the discomfort parts. Now, because I have that floor put in place by the pacemaker, 
I'm able to, once I'm fully recovered from this, start taking a medication that will control the spikes in my heart rate. But I couldn't start to take that until getting the pacemaker put in because it works on the electrical center of your heart. And they didn't want to risk basically it causing my heart to stop beating when I had those drops in heart rate. And so that'll allow me sort of by way of the the medication route to give a ceiling to that spiking. And that will hopefully control the POTS symptoms because that's what sort of affects me the most on a daily basis. And then it's going to be in terms of things like the the pectus excavatum that's causing my heart to be pushed on. That's going to be ongoing monitoring. And that's sort of left unknown at this point. I'm really hopeful that there's enough medical advancement around it that, you know, I get some better news at some point down the road about, you know, things like my ability to, you know, start a family naturally. Of course, there's all kinds of other options out there, but I would love to get more information about that particular option. And, you know, it's, yeah, that's where there's a lot of unknowns and this is all sort of a new, a new chapter of this journey and going to be sort of things that I live with. I'll have to have the pacemaker replaced in 12 years. So I have that to look forward to. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just one one thing at a time and sort of being a both newer and sort of lifelong member of the para-equestrian community, which is sort of a challenging title for it because it applies to just disabled equestrians, but it it's sort of restrictive in terms of the image it conjures up about who who it's talking about and the kinds of disabilities that they face in the name. So there's as far as I'm aware, not really a greater term for it. So navigating, having always sort of been, despite my knowledge of it or lack of knowledge, a member of that community, but now sort of being aware of it and going, okay, how am I going to choose to integrate the existing platform that I've built as, you know, as an equestrian professional into sort of my newly consciously claimed place in this community? And how can I use one? You've shifted your identity. Right. And in a way that sort of was like, it it was always this. And I just kind of didn't know it because I just didn't have the medical information. Mm -hmm. And now suddenly it's like, I'm new to this community, except I'm not really. I just, I'm new to knowing that I'm here. So you got to know yourself on a whole new level thanks to the MRI. I did. I did. And, you know, it's definitely created a lot of changes in my life and, you know, the, the greater extenuating health challenges and options or lack thereof for what my life can look like has definitely caused some significant restructuring in like who's in my life and not everybody wants to build a life with somebody that is going through things like this and not everybody who wants to do it is really able to show up in those ways and so that's where I've had to make a lot of decisions around who I have in my life and how I choose to build my life around those people or not because not everybody is able to go on this journey with us. And we might really, really love someone or want us there. And, you know, sometimes the most loving thing we can do is go, we're, you know, we're not able to be on this journey together. And I will say that I think the only thing in my experience worse than being alone in a hospital room is being stuck in a hospital room with someone that you know is resentful of having to be there. Oh my gosh, That's been huge for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or resentful to help in any way, mm-hmm. you know, or just you of your condition, able to tell who mm-hmm. it's like, who's doing, who's help, who's helping out of obligation, right? And who's helping because they just genuinely want to dive in, right? Yeah, it's right. it's very obvious, yeah, um, and it can be really painful you when know, you're got an amazing, yeah. Well, thank you. It's been it's been really painful, yeah. you know, to 
have certain people be in my life, you know, for a long, 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 long time, only to discover that, you know, when this new element comes up, you know, it, it restructures how someone sees you and to sort of feel like in someone's perception of you, all the things that are the ways they did see you authentically are suddenly completely eclipsed by this new perception of what your medical experience is and how it affects them, even if it's in ways that it doesn't really affect them and that they're not really responsible for. And sometimes other people's desire to fix an unfixable thing is harmful for everyone involved. I think usually that's that's the case, but Mm -hmm. certainly when that thing is, is a tangible medical problem, that adds another layer to it for sure. So that's been a really big part of my life is figuring out, okay, now that I have all this newfound medical information and I've restructured my life in all of these ways to be really inclusive only of people who are able to be on my journey with me, you know, now what is my life going to look like? And so I've been in kind of a really synergistic period of restructuring, you know, where I'm living and, you know, sort of what's happening with all of that alongside going through, you know, this last surgical journey. So the road ahead is wide open. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Wow. There's just so much that you have shared with us today that I cannot wait for the listener to take in. It's just such a necessary course in being a good human to each other, to ourselves, and a radical acceptance of grace, of continuing to move forward anyway. Yeah. And the the courage to, you know, see ourselves in a new light, you know, a necessary light. Yeah. What what a joy to talk to you today, Catherine. I, I cannot emphasize that enough. And, you know, listeners in the show notes, I'll I'll have all the ways you can get in touch with Catherine. And uh she's doing she's doing some incredible work with with horses. She has so many gifts that she's already offering the world. And I just encourage you to reach out to her for support for, you know, go to California, work with her. I think I'm going to look into that myself. Catherine, anything else you want to tell the audience today? Any other nuggets of wisdom? Oh, gosh, I think we've pretty much covered it. I mean, I'm I'm just so grateful that I've had an opportunity to be here. And, you know, this is the first time I've gotten to, you know, connect on, on a platform. Really, even I've got one friend in my life who is a cardiac patient who's gone through something similar and who was so sweet and reached out when I went through my pacemaker procedure. But other than that, I haven't really had anybody in my life who's gone through the kind of cardiac things that I've gone through and the level of of medical difficulty that I have. And so to have, to be given an opportunity to connect with another person and by extension, a greater you know network and community of, of people who are in the same boat and to not have to sort of distill down the really deeper difficulties and the raw truths about what we experience into something that is digestible for someone who can't relate to it is a tremendous relief. And so the hour and 15 minutes or so that we've had to you know, connect around all of this has been tremendously valuable and freeing to me to be able to not have to think about, okay, is what I'm about to say is something that this person can stomach or not? Or is this experience of my life that I'm about to talk about something that's going to be alienating, you know, is really, is really beautiful. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity to, to share that and to share some of the other sides of difficulties that I've, I've faced as a result of some of these things. And yeah, just to sort of be in my 
authenticity and in my experience and share that. And hopefully something that I've shared is something that someone will be able to relate to. And I would be thrilled to connect I'm with sure, anyone yeah. in your community. I would love well, that. Well, thank you. And yeah, there's there's the power in being seen and heard. So I'm glad that I could provide that for you today and for the listener. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Booth. So, I'm really appreciative. And that's the show for today. Thank you for spending part of your day with me. The Heart Chamber exists because of you. If you find value in this podcast, consider donating to this cause. Go to theheartchamberpodcast.com and go to the donate link. And hey, while you're there, feel free to leave me a voicemail. I want to hear from you. Lastly, don't forget to leave a review and make sure you subscribe so you never miss another Tuesday edition of The Heart Chamber. Thanks again. Have a great week. And I'll be back next week with more stories of open heart surgery and recovery.